Today's podcast comes from an archived sermon presented by our late brother in Christ, Andrew Connolly. The Menace of Mediocrity was one of Brother Connolly's favorite sermons. Listen attentively as the effects of a mindset toward mediocrity is discussed in relation to the Lord's Church and her members. Join Andrew Connolly as he opens God's Word and discusses how we can overcome the menacing sin of mediocrity. Tonight, it is my privilege to speak to you concerning the subject of mediocrity. I found a passage in the Bible that, to my mind, explains what mediocrity really is. 2 Corinthians, the 10th chapter, and verse 12. For we're not bold to number or compare ourselves with certain of them that commend themselves, but they themselves measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves with themselves are without understanding. To my mind, that's exactly what mediocrity is all about. Mediocrity has fastened itself on hundreds of congregations in thousands of ways across our land. Mediocrity is a halfway state. It's a half measure. It is simply the state of being mediocre. Most of us do not like to feel that we're mediocre. We like to think there's at least something about us that distinguishes us and makes us a little cut above the average. I don't believe that feeling is bad at all in the light of what God's Word teaches. God's Word teaches that we're an elect race, a royal priesthood, and a holy nation, that we're people for God's own possession. I believe we really are special. I believe that God has made us special by right of the new birth by being purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ. I do not believe it leads us to arrogance, but rather to humility. But good people, mediocrity is a very real and a very tragic sin. Mediocrity is boredom and frustration. So many people are never challenged to rise above the average because they're satisfied and stagnating in mediocrity. The degradation of mediocrity today invokes a tragic frustration and monotony for tomorrow. Shakespeare has Macbeth utter this soliloquy of frustration. Tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow creeps into this petty pace day by day to the last syllable of recorded time. And all our yesterdays have lighted fools the way to dusty death. Out, out, brief candle, what is life? It's but a bit player that struts and frets its hour upon the stage and is heard no more. It's a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. If a man reads that and really analyzes it, I believe the person was suffering from mediocrity. Mediocrity is nothing but a rut. And when people get in a rut, they're in a grave, for a rut's nothing but a grave with both ends knocked out. Sometimes we say congregations get up on high center. We say that we're really not progressing. We're describing a state of mediocrity. People are complacent. People are indifferent. People are negligent. People are lukewarm. People are indifferent. You're talking about the tragedy of mediocrity. I know that people enjoy being mediocre in the main. They don't like to admit it. Privately, they like to think they're better than Mr. Average. 
But in reality, they really enjoy being mediocre, for it doesn't tax them. It doesn't strain them. It doesn't challenge them. It doesn't really demand anything of them. First tonight, let's consider the anticipation of mediocrity. We find it on every level of our existence, from store clerks out in the world to shepherds and preachers in the kingdom of God. Now, why does mediocrity have such a great appeal? Why are people complacent, satisfied, indifferent, negligent? I think it's very easily seen because they fit the norm. They fit the pattern of Mr. Average. No one is upset by them. They never rock the boat. They never challenge anybody. They don't do anything to cause anybody any consternation at all. But people enjoy being mediocre, and it is found everywhere. My wife decided on one occasion she wanted to buy an entire box of shirts for me. You can't find shirts to fit me just everywhere. But she saw an ad in the paper, and it said that they had king size. So she went down to the store, and she decided that she would try to buy an entire box of shirts. She walked into the store. The salesman ran out, as they usually do. May I help you, please? Yes. Do you have Arrow shirts? Yes, ma'am, we do. What size? She said, 17 and a half, 37. He said, my goodness, lady, that's not a man. It's a gorilla. <laughs> I did exactly like you did. My wife came home, told me, and I laughed. She said, what are you laughing about? He's talking about you. Would you believe she walked out and didn't buy that box of shirts and has never been back in that store to this good day? That salesman missed a sale, but more than that, he lost a customer for life. Kids love to make C's in school. Parents are satisfied with kid C's quite often. I don't believe in pushing a child beyond their ability, but the reason that many parents are satisfied with C's is because they made them. And they don't demand any more of their kids than they demanded of themselves. And rather than trying to get the child to buckle down and really utilize the potential, they're satisfied with the kid doing exactly what they're doing. I walked into a pulpit on a Monday night to start a gospel meeting. Young preacher there had a sermon outline book he'd preached out of the night before. Not anything wrong with any of us using a sermon of someone else. It's the height of flattery if somebody preaches your sermon. But that boy hadn't even bothered to copy it out of the book. He just carried the sermon outline book right up into the pulpit. It was a canned sermon. And I'll guarantee you those kinds spoil pretty quickly. That young man didn't continue to preach very long. Most of us that are involved in training men to preach and who love the work of preaching know that's not the way to get the job done. But there is an anticipation about mediocrity. People like to be mediocre. You go into the PTA and you begin to make waves. You begin to fight some of the things the schools are doing. You begin to stir up men in the church in the business meeting. You begin to challenge them. You begin to point out the sins of the brethren. You begin to try to get brethren to go to work. And what do you find? You find that people had rather stagnate in mediocrity. They'd rather be involved in their little scheme of things and be left alone. Don't bother me. I'm all right. And they don't want to be told any different either. 
But good people, where is the mediocrity in passages like this? Matthew 6 and verse 33. Seek ye first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these other things shall be added unto you. Luke 13 and verse 24. Strive ye to enter in by the narrow door. For when once the master of the house is risen up and shut to the door, many of you begin to stand without and knock, saying, Lord, open unto us. When the man prefaced this statement by asking the Lord, Lord, are there few that are saved? I don't know why he asked it. Maybe it was idle curiosity. Maybe it was Jewish bigotry. Maybe it was a sincere desire to know the truth. But the way the Lord answered him, the Lord went to the heart of the problem. It doesn't matter whether there are few or whether there are many saved. What really matters is that you become one of the saved. You strive to enter in by the narrow door. The word strive means literally to agonize, to put forth extreme effort, like a runner that's running in a race. He gives it all he's got. All he's got. He puts out until finally he breaks through the curtain at the finish line. You're agonizing. You're striving. The Bible teaches that children of God have to put to death their members that are upon the earth. Fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry, for which things sake comes the wrath of God upon the sons of disobedience. Now do you put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, railing, shameful speaking out of your mouth. Lie not one to the other, seeing that you put off the old man with his doing, and you're being renewed unto knowledge after the image of him that created you. Colossians 3, 5 through 10. Where's the mediocrity there? Everything about the Bible is constantly pushing us. They that are of Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with the lust and the passions thereof. Far be it from me to glory save in Jesus Christ my Lord through which I have become crucified unto the world and the world has become crucified unto me. Galatians 5.24, Galatians 6.14. Where's the mediocrity there? Where's the satisfaction with the status quo? Paul, the old man, the interned man, we mentioned this morning, he said, this one thing I do, forgetting the things that are behind, I press on unto the mark of the prize, the high calling of God, which is in Christ Jesus the Lord. Philippians 3 and 14. Where's the mediocrity? Where's the satisfaction? Where's the complacency? Where is the numbering of ourselves with those like ourselves? Comparing ourselves and numbering ourselves with ourselves. No, Paul said, they that do that are without understanding. Now, good people, we need to turn to the antipathy of mediocrity. There's an anticipation. But now the antipathy, antipathy, just the reverse. What in the world are we going to do to rise out of conformity? What are we going to do to rise out of the morass of mediocrity? Anytime a child of God begins to study the Bible, he finds in order to do what God wants him to do, he finds himself involved in three great dynamics of Christian excellence. First, he must have the courage to care. Without the courage to care, good people, you will not go forward. I made mention recently in a sermon that there is an argument I cannot answer about Christianity. When somebody tells me I don't care, I can't deal with that. If he really means it down in his heart, he might as well just go on and continue in sin and go to hell. Because if he really doesn't care, 
what are you going to appeal to? You can't appeal to the blood of Christ. I don't care. You can't appeal to Christian influence. I don't care. You can't appeal to the starving, the lost, eternity, heaven, hell. Why? I don't care. We must have the courage to care. Well, what are we going to care about? Care about. Well, we have to care about at least certain things. One is the truth. That's what we have in lectureships like this. All over the land, there are brethren that do not care two pennies about the truth of God. Oh, they say they do. They pay lip service to it, but by their works they deny him. Jesus said, you'll know the truth, and the truth will make you free. John 8 and verse 32. Men and women can know the truth. They can attain the truth. But God holds them responsible for obeying and continuing in the truth. Brother Elkins taught it eloquently, simply, plainly, clearly, biblically in the last lesson. If men do not love the truth, buy the truth, and sell it not, they're going to spend eternity in torment. You say, well, why get excited about it? We love the truth. Do we really love the truth? How many of us are trying to crusade for the truth? I heard these men this afternoon say repeatedly, about the foundation of unity is true. F.W. Maddox recently in Ohio Valley Christian College stood up and said that's not true. He said the foundation of unity is love because in the church we've got premillennialists, we've got unity and diversity, we've got marriage, divorce and remarriage. Here he is a past president of a Christian college who's been responsible for the molding of the life of hundreds and thousands of children for 25 years not understanding and believing and teaching the Word of God. And then Ed Myers got up and says, the greatest dissertation on unity he'd ever heard. I'm excited about it. I'm angry about it because it's false doctrine. And yet you let somebody stand up and talk about it, he becomes the watchdog in the Ohio Valley, doesn't he, Terry? Are you concerned about the era being taught in papers in our brotherhood? Some of, them, some of those papers are as ungodly and insidious and divisive as anything that's ever been printed by the devil's press. Are you concerned about Christian colleges in the era coming out of college professors' mouths for our young people to believe and obey? Are you concerned with preachers who stand in pulpits of the Lord's people across the land denying the very word of God? We've got to have care for the truth. Secondly, we've got to have care about the church. We're concerned about men that would try to make of it a denominational body. There are men that laughingly joke about the church is nothing but a great, big, sick denomination. And all over the voice, all over the audience, you can hear men say amen at those lectureships. I deny it. I emphatically deny it. And there's not a one of them that's got the courage to debate it. There's not a one of them. You can challenge them and they'll say, we'll pray for you, brother. Recently in a letter I wrote to Rubel Shelley challenging him about matters like this, he said, there's nothing wrong with you except your attitude. My letter was the height of kindness. Nothing wrong with you, Andrew, but your attitude. Oh, they can be lovingly, loving, can't they? I'm concerned about the church, brethren. There's so many brethren mediocre in the church today that when we begin to act like Christians and begin to live according to the abundant life, our Christianity has been inferior so long that when we're normal, people think we're abnormal. But that's not what God says. We've got to be concerned about the truth. We've got to be concerned about the church. We've got to be concerned about the lost. 
That's what the church is all about, to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ into all the world, to defeat and meet every error that we can find, to show men the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. So many of us are glory in our own salvation, but we're not busily involved in teaching others. Just this last, just a few days ago, this week, a young Christian asked me, Brother Conley, how many people at Seagoville are involved in teaching others the gospel of Christ? I said, not near enough. It's a point of contention with me. It's something I'm ashamed of. We got all kind of programs going. But we don't have a dozen people regularly involved in cottage classes in a congregation of 400. Why? It's not from lack of preaching on it. It's not from lack of example on my part. But they're mediocre. They think they can go to heaven without breaking the bread of life. They're really not concerned about the lost. We've got to care about the church, care about the truth, care about the lost, care about men and women that are physically suffering. Today we prayed repeatedly for our sister and rightly so. But there are thousands upon multiplied thousands of men and women in the world that are hungry, starving, and dying. I'm not a secular humanist. My wife and I had the privilege of building the first hospital for churches of Christ anywhere in the world. It was not, is not, and never shall be as long as I live a humanitarian endeavor. It's there to reach men and women with the gospel of Christ. But in that area, it was a great tool of evangelism. And there are hundreds of places on earth that work ought to be duplicated. We need more benevolence in our areas. There are people without jobs. There are people hungry, sick. There are people that have medical bills. And the churches of Christ do not do enough benevolence. Let our light so shine before men. They seeing our good work will glorify our Father which is in heaven. Matthew 5 and verse 16. So the first dynamic excellence of Christianity is the courage to care. Secondly, the desire, the dare to dream. My, my, many of us have no dreams at all. But to dare to dream is part of the great expectation of the child of God. Dreams are what give us visions of greatness. This sympathetic, caring, compassionate hand must be joined by visionary eyes. We've got to dare to dream. All my life I dared to dream to see the gospel go throughout Tanzania and throughout the nation of Malawi. Oh, I'm not discounting that work. I'm not discounting compassion. But I'm saying that dreams are essential to greatness. The poet Lowell said, Not failure, but low aim is crime. And that's right. God Almighty put it like this in Ephesians 3 and 21. Now unto him that's able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above that which you ask or think according to the power that works in you. Do you believe there is superlative power available through the child of God to accomplish the work of God? That's what that verse argues. Now unto him that's able to do above. That's superiority, good people. Exceedingly above. Exceedingly abundantly above. How in the world could you magnify it and multiply it anymore? But not only that which you see, not only that which you speak, but that which you're able even to think, comprehend. God's waiting on us. We're not waiting on God. As long as we have our feet firmly grounded in the word of truth, then the sky's the limit. 
A lot of people like to look at themselves when they're about knee high to a duck and say, man, I'm a self-made man. Yeah, they really are. They're self-made, all right. And they're just about knee high to a broken-legged duck. They've never had dreams of greatness in the kingdom of God. Oh, they got them a house. They got them an automobile. They got them a boat. They take pictures of it. And they say, look what I've accomplished. Look what I've achieved. And that's really the extent of their dreams. I don't believe that's what God wants in the kingdom of God. Philip Brooks has well said, he's a man who preached many years ago, the ideal life is in our blood and it will never be still. Sad will be the day when the man is satisfied with the thoughts that he is thinking and the deeds that he is doing and there is not forever beating at the door of his soul something greater which he knows he was meant and made to do. Amen. Satisfied with the deeds you're doing, the thoughts you're thinking, never in this world. I know what the Bible teaches about contentment, but I know also Paul says you forget the things that are behind, the good and the bad, and you press on. You keep on conquering in the name of the Lord. That's what God wants us to do. God never wants us to achieve all of our goals. Brother Warren had to stay in tonight. Wasn't feeling well, and he's not here so I can talk about him. Not a one of you dare say a word about him. But I love Brother Warren. One of the great reasons I love him is because he's got such great visions of what he wants to accomplish, accomplish even yet in the kingdom. I don't know how many books he's got in print now. I don't know how many he's been editor of, author of, or publisher of, but it must be 45 to 50 now. <laughs> he's got about seven already written waiting to print right now. He's got about 12 more that's almost finished and 20 more outlined. All he wants is just 20 more years of life to get them out, but by then I'll guarantee you'll have 40 more in the works. But isn't that what God wants? Isn't that what God wants us to do? To dream great dreams, to have visions of greatness? You heard him talk today about the ads. I've heard him preach it 25 years, hadn't you? But that's the way things come about. There must be those visionary eyes to see my dear sweet mother still alive. 75 years old. Glories in every sermon I preach. Years ago, she bought a little memento and put it on my desk. She says, this is what I think about when I think about you. Those who can see the invisible can do the impossible. And I, every time I look at that little slogan on my desk, I think of my mama. Thank God for women like her. She put it in my heart. Yes, we must have the dare to dream. And thirdly, we must have the willingness to work. Oh my, what in the world are visionary ideas worth if you don't put them into practice? You may have so many ideas that nobody can even keep up with them, but maybe we've got to have hands that will work. The courage to care, the dare to dream, the willingness to work. And if you don't get men and women working, the greatest dream will lie completely undone, unfinished, unfulfilled. And if you're going to have the willingness to work, there has to be at least four classes involved in the church working. There has to be mighty ministers. I gave them a dose of it this morning or this afternoon. So I'll not belabor the point. But they must be prayerful. They must be purposefully prepared to do the work God wants them to do. And they never quit growing. 
They never quit studying. They never quit praying. They never quit trying. God Almighty teaches they have the responsibility to reprove, rebuke, and exhort with all long-suffering and teaching. Why? Because men oppose themselves, that's why. And those that sin reprove in the sight of the others that all may fear. 1 Timothy 5 and 21. Preachers have a sacred, sacred, solemn responsibility. There has to be mighty ministers for the work of the Lord to go forward. If a church is going to be alert, awake, and advancing, there has to be divisions of labor, and it has to be carried out. Secondly, after the mighty ministers, there have to be enlightened elders. You'd never have lectureships like this without enlightened elders. I know of elders that say the day of gospel meetings have passed, much less lectureships like this. You might as well say the day of the word of the Lord is past. A young intellectual came up to me recently in a meeting. Now you imagine asking me, I'm out there preaching my heart out every night, putting up with the foolishness of people like him. And he walked up to me and he says, Brother Conley, don't you really think the day of gospel meetings are over? I started to say, that's about like asking a cowboy if he thinks the day of horses is ended. To ask a preacher, do you think the day of gospel meetings are over? People, when we have reached the point that men and women no longer need the word of God, it'll be because we're all in heaven. And not until. Enlightened elders. Elders who know more than how to hire and fire a preacher. And how to hide the money in bank accounts. But elders who have the idea of understanding what the word of God is and can apply it to the human situation. Who's concerned with shepherding the sheep. They're not leaderless leaders. They're not sheepless shepherds. But they're men that love the word of God and love the souls of men. And they put it to work together. I believe in the power of an eldership. I don't want to work in any church without an eldership. I had to when I was a young preacher in Florida College. Went out and helped start new churches. We didn't even have elders. Don't tell me where I want to work. I know I want to work under a godly eldership with whatever mistakes they make. We're none of us perfect. No one's demanding perfection. But men who know what the Word of God says. Matthew 20 and ver or Acts 20 and verse 28. Take heed unto yourselves and the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. That taking heed is something, the tense of it is a continually taking heed unto themselves, continually taking heed unto the flock, allowing that flock to understand, here is earth, there is heaven, here's where we're going, and we're leading you there. That kind of leadership, most of the sheep will follow. You've always got a few rebel, rebels that won't, but so be it. Enlightened elders, dedicated deacons. I worked in a congregation one time and had 42 deacons. 17 of them never attended a deacons meeting while I was there. I didn't have to wonder what those dirty deacons did. They didn't do nothing. <laughs> they never showed up. You couldn't find them. Half of them you couldn't find during services. They weren't there. A fellow told me this week when I was on the plane, he said, I guess you heard about those deacons, didn't you? Got kicked out of hell. I said, no, you got to be kidding. He said, yeah, they let the fires go out. 
But the Bible teaches deacons gain for themselves great power because they're strong in the work of God. The Bible knows that God needs good men to serve. I love our deacons at Seagoville. I'll tell you honestly, when I got there, the first thing I saved the congregation and I asked the elders, how many deacons do we have? Tongue in cheek, they said we got five, two working and three sitting. Well, in two years, we had 18. And now we've only got 12, but we got 12 working. If you're going to wear the crown, you better carry the cross, brother. And if you can't spend a night taking care of your particular work as a deacon, what business are they? What business you got being a deacon? I believe in deacons. I love them. I glory in them. But, brother, I want them to work. I want them to be special servants of the Lord, just like preachers are special and elders are special. But we've got to have dedicated deacon, faithful. We're going to have mighty ministers, enlightened elders. Now we've got to have faithful followers. You can't have all chiefs, no Indians. You've got to have Indians to make it work too. Faithful followers, every child of God in every service, they're not providentially hindered. If not, why not? The elders have the right to feed the flock, you bet. Hebrews 13, 17. Acts 20 and verse 28. They have the responsibility of seeing we grow spiritually. Why not every child of God in every service, in every Bible study, unless he's providentially hindered? Why not every child of God giving sacrificially? Why not every child of God trying to teach someone the truth of God? Why not? That's exactly what God wants us to do. Why not? Oh, you're talking about the ideal. Yes, I am. I'm talking about getting us out of the morass of mediocrity, realizing our sacred responsibility. Be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Inasmuch as you know your labor in the Lord is not in vain. 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Teach our people to maintain good works for necessary uses. Titus 3 and verse 10. God Almighty wants us truly to be about the Father's business. But now, good people, just as surely as we have mighty ministers working in the kingdom, enlightened elders, dedicated deacons, and faithful followers, it follows then that we must have an antidote for mediocrity. We had the anticipation of it. We had the antipathy of it. And now the antidote. What in the world do we do to come out of that morale? It takes Herculean effort. You know how hard it is to get people out of the morass of mediocrity? It's just as hard as it is to get mildew out of your pants. <laughs> I was a kid in college, and this actually happened to us. There was five of us in one room, all old boys that didn't have sense enough to get out of the rain. We went down there to Florida to college. We'd been in Abilene. We went off down there to school. And along about October, they started getting those daily rains that they get down in Florida. Well, we washed our clothes and we put them out on the clothesline. They were all wet, so we thought, well, <clears throat> leave them out overnight. Back then, you could leave your pants out without somebody stealing them. Well, we'd leave the pants out, and the next morning or afternoon, it'd rain again. They'd get wet again. We'd go out, still wet, no place to hang them. Leave them out one more day. We didn't know it rained every day down there for about two months. <laughs> for about the fourth or fifth day, somebody said, well, we got to get these pants inside, man. We're running out of clothes. 
And we carried them inside, and they began to dry, and you can imagine what had happened. They'd already mildewed. Stink? Oh, my. I'd never smelt mildew in Texas, man. It wasn't enough dampness out there, hardly, to baptize a Methodist. But the truth of the matter is, in, in Florida, we had mildew. I'll never forget Homer Haley. I walked into class one day, and Brother Haley started to teach the class. He said, Andrew, is that you? <laughs> he said, Andrew, open the window. And I opened the window and sat by the window from then on. We didn't have any money. We couldn't buy any new clothes. Mildew. The blight of mildew is horrible. So is mediocrity, just like mildew. But what's the antidote part? The same thing it's always been, confession of sin. We've got to admit it. We've got to confess it. The Bible teaches us that if we're guilty of a sin, we've got to confess it in order to be saved. If a man won't confess it, God can't forgive it. But not only confess it, there must be commitment. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's the totality of your being. Matthew 22, 34 through 37. There's not anything else to do. If a man loves the Lord with the totality of his being, there's nothing lacking and he loves his neighbor as himself. But if you're going to have commitment and you're going to have confession, you must have continuation. Be not weary in well-doing, for in due season we'll reap if we faint not. There must be the confession. There must be the commitment. Commitment to rise above it, and then the continuation to eternally fight it in your life. A long time ago, a wise man said that Constant vigilance is the price of freedom. Well, he was speaking about political vigilance. He was preaching, uh, speaking about political freedom. But the same thing is true spiritually. You can settle on your lees. You can grow fat. You can neglect for a time. You can fold your hands and close your eyes. And you can be at peace, the peace of a graveyard, until the second coming and the judgment, and then it's too late. <clears throat> I have not preached everywhere. I do not know everyone, but I am familiar with the sin of mediocrity. Every so often, old Andrew Connolly has to get himself by the nap of the neck in the seat of the pants and shake himself royally to make me reaffirm my commitment, to shape up, and to push myself harder. I don't think I'm very different from most of us. Mediocrity is a sin, and a whole lot of us are lukewarm like the Laodiceans. We've left our first love like the Ephesians. We have a name that lives, but we're dead like the church at Sardis. But thanks be to God, because of the power of the word, we can forsake it, and God can forgive it.